Hello, my name is Mehmet Day and I'm a researcher at the Verwaai Jonker Institute in Utrecht and the Erasmus University Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Youth with a migration background, they're raised with multiple cultures in their development and they have to deal with it. So they have to manage these different cultures in a socially and psychologically way in order to find a balance between them. So in different situations, you act differently based on where you are and who you face. Hi, I am Sabrina Alanashi. And I'm Jana Fietze. And we both work in educational sciences at Erasmus University Rotterdam. In today's episode, we talk to Mehmet Dai, who is a colleague of ours at Erasmus University Rotterdam, currently pursuing his PhD in the Department of Clinical, Family and Child Studies. In this episode, we talk about young people who identify with more than one culture and how they balance these different cultural identities in their daily lives. In the past section... Mehmet talks about being a Turkish kid in the Netherlands and how he himself has sometimes struggled to develop his own identity. He also talks about being the first one in his family to do a PhD, about not having many academic role models and how difficult it can be to explain to family members what it is exactly that he is doing as an academic. In the present section, we discuss an article by Stuart and Ward which describes how youth combine multiple social identities in different ways. And in the future section, Mehmet gives us insights into building a bridge between doing research and being an educational advisor and how both of these jobs can positively influence each other. Also, we discuss how schools can help students manage and combine different cultural identities. As always, you can find the references to the studies that we mention on our website. All right, let's start with the episode. Welcome, Mehmet, and thanks for being here. As in every episode, we'll start talking about the past. Can you tell us why did you become interested in the topic of managing the multicultural identity? I think it has several reasons. I studied pedagogy and I was interested in getting insight in the social, societal issues and mainly in the field of youth and education. And I think one of the things where we talk about in society is identity. And we talk about a lot of times, but it stays on the surface many times because it's like we're referring to some ethnic labels or gender labels or some kind of other labels. And that's what identity is. But it's also having a dominant narrative in the public and political debates, especially when we talk about young people. So it was for me as a kid in the Netherlands from Turkish parents, it was like, okay, what does it mean? So I think partially it was also the search of my own to give the meaning and what it means to me to be a Turkish-Dutch citizen in the Netherlands, but also what kind of way do you have to deal with it? So it was the narrative about identity which was not in depth discussed and also my own things I experienced in this life. I think that's partially the reason where it all began for me. And every time with my study and after that, when I did some research or when I had some conversations about, for example, diversity and inclusion, the subject and the topic of identity, it was there, you know, but it was always there in a non-in-depth way. So I had to give more words to that, you know, in a more scientific way. So I think that's the main reason, I think, or the main way how it went for me. Okay, nice. So that's why you became interested in the topic because of your own background and because the topic was more on the surface, it needed more to be in-depth. Yeah, yeah. 
Why did you become a researcher in general? Are there other reasons for that? You know, I'm searching for many insights about how we do things. The capacity or also the wish to get more answers for how things go in the way they're going, you know. Mm -hmm. that, that was one of the reasons I think it was very important for me to say I want to become a researcher. But it wasn't very obvious because I didn't have many role models in my environment, you know, about mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't know a lot of researchers. Mm -hmm. But when I did my study and I came in contact with a lot of researchers and the other lecturers, it was like I want to contribute to this field. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I didn't start with it, maybe for the listeners, I didn't start as a researcher. I started in the education. My study was about pedagogy, education and society. So it was like societal issues from a pedagogical viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But I started as a, I had to Google this, what the English term for it is. You know, <laughs> what it was, because, yeah. yeah. Because in the Netherlands, we just have some job descriptions. That I think, okay, how do I, not just in English, but how do I translate this to other languages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was a student a support coordinator for a youth and students with autism spectrum disorder. And I did this a couple of years. So I started an education and it was very meaningful the way you are supporting those young people which are in need to get more support than a regular student without autism spectrum disorder. It was very meaningful and I was happy with it. But I missed something and it was the thinking about to take a step back and thinking about how do we want to organize the society for a lot of young people mm -hmm. and not just people with disorders, but also a more bigger group of young people. Mm -hmm. So after two years, I guess, yeah, two years, I thought, okay, I can continue in this path and maybe it will be a, a good and meaningful job for me and I can grow up in the education system and, and continue with this beautiful job. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I know I don't think this is the thing I have to do, you know. It's because of my search. It's because of my, yeah, the theoretical insights I want to develop, the knowledge I want to develop, and to go with the knowledge to a bigger group, to the society. So I think that was, at that time, also a main reason for me to say, okay, I want to switch now in field and I want to become a researcher. Okay, interesting way uh, to becoming a researcher. Did you encounter any challenges on the way to becoming a researcher? Yeah, like I said, it wasn't obviously for me because when you talk about also in my family, I'm a researcher, there is not a it's not very common to become a yeah. researcher. Mm -hmm. My parents came here at a young age because their parents came to the Netherlands from Turkey as migrants to work here. And in the environment I was in my upbringing, there were not people like, they do not motivate you to go to in a research field, you know, because it's not very common about what do you have to do yeah. as a researcher. <laughs> it's not as it, common as uh, becoming a, a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, a lawyer, yeah. a doctor, you know, that's, that's yeah. that kind of thing. And especially, and I know where it came from, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's not, a, I'm not blaming my parents or, or no. yeah. it, it's mm -hmm. like, it's, it's their life, you know, and they came here and I know my father uh, wanted to study, but he didn't get the chance and the possibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. to, to do it and he always said to us you have to study we didn't get the chance for it and you have those possibilities just grab it so it wasn't like yeah you have to become a researcher and that's a good thing yeah. because nowadays it's still like working like for six years right now as a researcher I'm still describe what it exactly is and 
what it's good for, you know? It's not yeah. that practical, you know? Okay, yeah, now that yeah. Okay, you're, you're reporting, you know? Okay, you're writing articles and papers. Yeah. Okay, Why yeah. are you doing that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why are you doing that? Yeah. So that was one of the things. And I think it's a challenge, but at the same time, it's also a motivation, you know? So yeah. I don't downplay it like it was just a challenge for me. So because my environment wasn't that supportive, mm-hmm. but it's also a motivation to do it because of the fact it's not that common and yeah. you want to give more insight about which jobs are more to do and which is more possible. Yeah, right. So the uncommon things. Yeah. What do you tell your parents now what it's good for that you're doing? I'm doing a research and I'm writing and I'm giving, and that's what I do, giving ministries and local governments advice about how they can support their education, their youth policy, etc. It still is something abstract for her. But when I say, yeah, it's pedagogy, you know, and pedagogy is like developmental psychology. <laughs> and so I'm also looking to stuff like how do we support the upbringing and the development of young people in the Netherlands? It becomes more sharper than that abstract thing as a researcher. But I also just received some comments like, okay, psychology and child, how do you know? <laughs> what is that? Child, <laughs> uh, just psychology, you know? <laughs> yeah, very recognizable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So I'm trying it. This is also a balancing act to be able to describe what you do in your daily life which you do also from a passionate way, you know, passionately. And I love my job. I love the things I do. But it's a challenging thing for me still after six years to describe it in a good way for my parents-in-law or for my mother or for uh, any other family members. Yeah. But it's still going and they accept it. Me. It will become clearer. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Well, and what advice would you then give to other or junior researchers, especially for students with a migration background, for instance? Could you give them some advice? Like what kind of advice would you give them? I think there is a good way to describe it from the viewpoint of knowledge. And knowledge is also a thing which is very important for many parents, despite the fact they didn't study the university or know not that much about it. But I think if you say I'm doing research and I want to do studies for understand the world better around us and to help other people with that, It's still abstract, but they know the added value about it. So I think you have to start with that to explain the added value of knowledge, getting more insight about how we organize our lives and how we give some meanings on uh, some topics and how we want to become it in the future. Um, when I say I'm also doing my PhD research to become a doctor, yeah. the association of doctor is more like, okay, so you're going to work at the hospital then? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very recognizable. Yeah. No, no, it's not the hospital, but it's more like you will get a title, you know, and in the scientific field, you will, with the title, you can continue with your research and you at that moment have an expertise at that point. So you shouldn't start with that. It's not like, yeah, I want to get my PhD title. Just start with, I want to get more knowledge about how we organize our society. And especially from a pedagogical viewpoint, when I talk about my uh, research field, I want to support children in growing up in a healthy way, the development and supporting policy and practice for this. The 
this brings us immediately to our next section, the present. So which paper did you bring us today? Which paper are we going to talk about? That's a paper from 2011. It's uh, from Stuart and Colleen. So my main topic is about identity development and I'm looking at it from the culturally identity aspect. And I'm also looking at it from a more multiple cultural orientation, which a lot of young people from the second and third generation, so with a migration background has. And this paper is from Stuart and Colleen, I guess, professors in New Zealand. And they did research by using a qualitative methodology to explore the way the acculturation of young Muslims in New Zealand and the adaptation from young Muslims. And it was the first paper for me where I started to read about the different strategies young people can use in order to balance or in order to manage their multiple cultural identities. So it was, for me, an outstanding paper because of the content, but at the same time, it was outstanding for me because of the methodological use of qualitative way in exploring this topic, because we know many, many papers and many research is is not done in a qualitative way, but it's more like a quantitative study, you know, with examining by more standardized skills, which are in a lot of way, the primary means of examining acculturation or identity. But in this paper, you know, you they also work very critical about that because it also can be thought and you don't get the insights which you get from this one. So it was very outstanding for me. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why I uh, picked this one. We prepared a question which I always really like asking people. So if you had to explain the main findings of this article to your grandma, so how could you explain the main finding of this paper? <laughs> yeah, nice question. <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of minority youth with a migration background, they're raised with multiple cultures in their development and they have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So they have to manage these different cultures in a socially and psychologically way in order to find a balance between them. So in different situations, you act differently based on where you are and who you face. And I think it's very important to get that insight also from the viewpoint of teachers or from the education or other practitioners, which are also working with young people because of understanding what young people has to deal with. And with this paper, I think it was a great start to think about two type of strategies. It was like alternating identity style and the hybrid identity style, which means if I start with the last one, what hybrid identity style is like you have to merge, you have to combine different cultural elements from one and other culture and you make their just one identity from it, you know? So it's more like emerging. And the other one with alternating identity style is you are shifting from the one to another. That also depends heavily on who you face and where you're at at the moment. So the setting is very important for this topic. And to get more insight in this, I think it really gives more understanding for us about how young people are facing this multiple cultural orientation, which they have to encounter in their daily life and how they managed it in order to find a balance, you know, in how they will use it in order to get a more 
precise way and a good way to deal with this task. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the reason I picked this research and paper to discuss with you. Yeah, and I think maybe to give it a bit of context, so I think overall this paper could be embedded in psychological acculturation, right? So from Colleen Ward, uh, she has done a lot of research on this and this can be understood as an individual's experience so it is really much about the individual not about the society that is affected by the cultural origins an individual their ethnic group in which they're embedded but also the host society that they grow up in or that they that they live in yeah. and in this paper the authors actually say that one of their goal is to describe within this acculturation framework how muslim youth in new zealand can achieve a balance of identities right so that is what you already said yeah yeah right. and a question that i had is like what is the best way to achieve a balance like is there a best way <laughs> like what, what do you think from your own research also You know, maybe from your feelings, you ha you will just say, yeah, let's merge or the using of the hybrid identity style will be a good or will be the best way because you're picking the good things, the good elements from different cultural origins, different cultural orientations, and you make one of them. You know, we know from research in some way, this is the case. It's a good way to do it. But I don't think it's very realistic. You know, it's not just everywhere I will take those different cultural aspects from my cultural identities and I will make one from them. It's also very, it depends on the situation in the way it's inclusive, you know, is it possible to get it? And in what way will the other people will respond to it? That's also a very important thing for young people. And at this moment, we are just talking about it, rationalizing it, you know, but it's not always a rational thing. It's also the common thing which a lot of young people have to deal with and they are just looking for what's happening in this environment, you know, and how do I have to use this one or the other one? So that point of alternating identity style, shifting between identities, is also a thing which you have to manage to get that balance, you know? So it depends on the situation. It depends heavily on which people you face in that moment. So I don't think we have to say, yeah, hybrid, hybrid identity, which is more... I think from the feelings intuitively, you know, more to say yeah, that's a good thing because picking beautiful things together and making one thing from it. But I don't think it's very realistic to ask this to the youth, you know, to young people than to say yeah, you have to manage to do it every time, you know, at any moment you have to do your hybridizing skill or your blending <laughs> skill. Can you give a specific example of For instance, a Turkish student uh, alternating between identities or using its hybrid identity in different contexts, like a specific example. Do you have one? When I start with alternating, it's like when you're in the situation, like you are at college and there is the topic to discuss about how you give the meaning on your ethnical cultural identity. And at that point, you're just seeking around and looking who are there, you know, mm -hmm. and you're thinking about, okay, do I have to talk in this way or the other way? You know, which words do I have to use? And because in order to, you know, you are in a setting with a bunch of people and you will have a conversation, mm -hmm. you're just talking in a way you think the other one will understand you without using a couple of words, which is more common to you when you use it at home or with other young people, which you are sharing the same cultural background, maybe, you know, so you can pick that also in the words you will use about it. The other thing is also when you're at home, you know, your Turkish side is more 
dominance because, you know, your parents or your grandparents, um, there are also a lot of more from a Turkish way. So the Turkish language will be more dominant, you know, to talk with. Yeah. It's more like the code switching. And we know a lot of young people with a migration background, from my research, for them, the Dutch language is a very dominant language for them in their daily life. Yeah. So when they speak with their friends, when they speak with other people, Dutch language is the commonly used language. But when they are with family members, you know, when they are in the home situation, it will be more like the Turkish or the language from their culturally origin. Like I said earlier, it's not always a common thing you do. You know, we overthink this. We are thinking about this and we are speaking right now about this. But a lot of young people, it's just the thing they do. You know, they're used to it to switch between and alternate between those settings and those contexts. That's one example of alternating. And I think with hybrid identity, it's the case in colleges and at the university. You're also seeing some exchange students from the country of origin, for example, Turkey. And if you have a conversation with them, they just saying, right, like, okay, the Turkish Dutch people here are so different. And it's quite the same when you speak with the Turkish Dutch people about the students which are here for their exchange. You know, they're all saying the same. The Turkish students said they are not like us, you know, so they can't say what it precisely or exactly is, you know, a lot of time. But it's just different. I think that's the way how it goes. It's also the upbringing, the development you have to experience in the Dutch society. And you got some things and it's like you can talk with them in Turkish language. But the way you're acting, the you know way you're speaking, and also the way you're thinking, it's different. And you can't say this is more Turkish than the other one, you know. But I think with a lot of young people with a migration background who is socialized in this society, it's in an automatically way it's hybridized and it blended with them as a person. It's really nice that you can put these very concrete examples to it because I think it's sometimes difficult when we you know we talk about theories and we talk about assumptions and then actually you try to understand what does it actually mean for actual people <laughs> yeah. and I was wondering because all of us are doing research in schools or at least on youth and I was wondering how schools can help students to find the right kind of balance or a balance that they're comfortable with between these different identities that they have. I think it's important to start with acknowledging that part of identity development as a central task. What I don't see, and I'm talking about the context of the Netherlands, a lot of teachers, a lot of education professionals, they accept there is an identity development, but it's not a thing like we have to actively contribute to their development, you know? It's not a thing like, okay, I just have to teach my profession, you know, my topic. And I think the way the education approach this topic is too implicitly. So I think we have to make it explicitly mm -hmm. and also more going down to the need of individual students. I don't think we have to support all the students in their development, in their multiple cultural identities, because it's also a reality of life. And a lot of uh, young people just experience this with trial and error, which is a good thing, which is a part of life. So we have to accept that one. But we have also to identify those young people who are in need to get more support from it. And I think it starts with the acknowledgement and with giving it a more and explicitly a meaning to say, okay, from the education, we can contribute to the identity development of these young people, of these youth. 
I think that's the starting point. And after that, when you have accepted that, I think you have to support them in explore their mm-hmm. several cultural orientations they have and sort of several cultural identities. So what does it mean to you, you know, and in what way? That thing, you know, to explore and to give that open setting to them to have a good exploration for this, it depends on the teacher you have. If a teacher does it, it's okay, you know, but it's not from a more education thing, you know, it's not the thing you will ask teachers, okay, in what way do you also support this development, which we know School is a very important place where young people also shape their identity and where they also experiment with their social identities. So I think it's a good thing to start with acknowledging the school as a good place for young people in order to support their in their identity development. That brings up another question for me, which is, you have already mentioned this, that a lot of people seem to switch between strategies, right? So it's really yeah. sometimes you use this, sometimes you use that. But in your own research, you also find that certain people have a certain style that they keep going to, or like a preferred identity style, I would say. And I found something similar in my work also on Turkish heritage adults in Austria. And I found that interesting to see why do some people choose the one and why do some people choose the other? Like, do you have any reason already or like anything you find already in your research to answer this question? You know, we're talking about the environment, we're talking about the setting. When young people experience there, it's an open place, it's an open setting for which they can blend, you know, which they can use also other multiple cultural orientations or their several cultural aspects they also have. I think an inclusive setting is very important to do that. At the same time, I think it's also an interpersonal thing. So a lot of young people can deal with it. But also there are also a lot of young people who are more sensitive about some things and it's very hard for them to deal with it. So you have also looked to individuals and how they deal and how they manage their several cultural identities from the level of society or from the level of the context or from the level of a setting. I think the inclusion as an important factor, you know, but from interpersonal way, I think you have also looked to that individual, to the young people how they deal with it, and is it possible for him or her to manage those identities? And if you take them both, so if you take the inclusion and also from the personal way, I think you will get an answer. But like I said, we have to research this topic, and I hope I will get an answer for uh, next year or maybe year after. <laughs> Well, this brings us to our next section, the future. What changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding research on your topic? You know, the framework from the multiple cultural identities is from one cultural identity and the other cultural identity. What I find very fascinating from the concept of hybrid identity is it's not just the cultural identity you experience is not just one cultural identity. You know, it's a lot of people with the same background can experience in a different way. 
And the framework we use in science, it's about, you know, there are theories and we have to collect our data. And after that, we look also to the theory, you know, in what way do we see a combination or in what way do we see it's also in the literature, you know, how they describe this. And the framework we're using is from that viewpoint of the one culture and the other culture. So I blame also myself and also conducting research in that framework, you know, but I think we have to go beyond that because the hybridity and it's very complex, I know, because from research, we have to make it separate. You know, we have to limit ourselves to make some research also researchable, you know, at mm, yeah. the other point, it's very hard and it's very difficult to have research. But I think sometimes we are bumping behind the reality of a lot of young people, which is the hybridizing is also a part of them. And they also have a different kind of cultural identity. They created that in just being, you know, just living in the society, which those several cultural influences. And at the same time, we just look it to from one cultural identity to other. I don't think we have to say, okay, this is not the case anymore. It will stay, you know. I think those are different cultural identities. Mm -hmm. But the way we are talking about the cultural identity, the framework we have, you know, it has to go beyond this cultural identity and the other cultural identity. I don't have the answer for it right now, but I think it has to be more research and we have to find a better and a more comprehensive way to describe and to explain the way young people also making one identity from, and it's not always one identity, but making a unique way of experiencing and of forming and shaping their identity. Do you mean that there are more identities and strategies for having an identity than alternating or hybridizing? Do you mean that? Yeah, you know, the hybridizing and alternating are two strategies which we are know they exist, you know? So you mean that there are more than these two? Yeah, yeah. I think, of course, there will be more strategies. But it's also the way we look at cultural identity as this is Moroccan and this is Dutch, you know? Yeah. The example I give to you when you ask about the hybrid identity for a more concrete example, it's more like, you know, the Turkish or the Moroccan way of living for young people in the Netherlands is very different for young people from Turkey or Morocco, you know, in what they see and the meaning they give to their cultural identity. And it's also the case for the way you experience your Dutchness, you know? Yeah. So if we just say, okay, this is your cultural identity and that's like Chinese and the other cultural identity that's Dutch, you know, but it doesn't do justice to the complex reality which is experienced by a lot of young people. So I don't know how to research that at the proper way, but I think we have to go beyond just, okay, this is one kind of identity and that's from your ethnic heritage, you know, yeah. and that is from the dominant society. Yeah. And to go beyond that, it needs a new framework. Yeah. So that's also the reason why I think we have to do more qualitative research, which is more inductive. So in that way, we can make hopefully new theories and we can find also better words, better understanding about this concept. Yeah. And do you think that we're talking about culture in general, but every culture has also subcultures? Do you think that this also plays a role in this identity? I think that's a good thing to start with mm -hmm. because those subcultures, you know, those are very important for some people and also for some young people. And the way they are uh, using that subculture, you know, within the broader culture mm -hmm. is also influenced by the way they are living in the Netherlands. In this case, like how they experience some things, what happens. 
And there's also the meaning they give on that subculture or on the broader culture they have. So we have to come in a more fluent way of describing, explaining cultural identity, you know, uh, beyond your heritage or it's uh, from the dominant culture. Yeah, and I think what is another unique strength of what you are doing is that you're actually combining doing research, so sort of really now finishing your PhD, and then also being an advisor on the side. <laughs> so basically, or to say, well, both, I think, have an equal part in your daily life and in your understanding also of who you are, I guess. That's what you told us in a meeting that we had recently. And I was wondering which future potential do you see for people like you who can build a bridge between the research that they do and actually having an advisory role. So a clear direct link to schools, to universities, to anyone, to politics who have questions about these topics. Yeah, I think it starts with the virtual research design. I think a lot of researchers in universities, we are taking a lot of theories and other research central to say, okay, we have to continue with this research, you know? Mm-hmm. But in that way, what I experienced with the combination of working for an institute, which has more um, practice approach to research, you know, to have the translation of knowledge to the practice and to policy, the main difference is the way we are doing the research from the need, what we we see in the case of education from teachers or from other people working in education settings. And it's a very important thing to acknowledge and to understand that a lot of people from the practice, you know, from those contexts are searching for practical things to do and to use in their daily life, in their daily work. And when you start with the need and you will combine it with more theories, with the knowledge we have from the field of research, I think it will become a more valuable way to make that translation to the practice, you know, to how to use it in more schools as a teacher, etc. So I think really it starts with the design we use and the academic culture is more like, okay, we have to start with more theoretical views and we have to collect data and more like the assumptions which we have and are there, can we also find some data which is conflicting this or not? Mm -hmm. I think it's another way to look at research and knowledge than when you look at from the way of, okay, what are the needs and what can you identify when you are in frequently in contact and when you frequently have conversations with those in the practice and to take that as a central starting point and after that you know okay this is the knowledge we have and we can do it with this i don't want to devalue or downplay fundamental research you know i think it can exist alongside and we have to use it also in combination But when we just aim to have a publication in a scientific journal, which is very good in academic world, and that's the aim for a lot of researchers, I don't think we will get that transition to support the policy or the practice from our knowledge. It will just continue like now. And when we think we need that change, and I think we need that change, We also have to start with how do we start this research? Is it literature and the theories our central point? Or do we want to start with the needs from the practitioners, you know, from the people in the practice and or from policymakers? And how can we combine it with the theories we know about this topic? Yeah. And do you have maybe an example of a recent practical advice that you've given or like a recent question that somebody had for you or something like this? Yeah, like we started in Utrecht with evaluating a lesson in a secondary school. It was an intervention program, which was like a one hour in seven weeks. 
And the school, they started by themselves with this lesson because they are in a neighborhood with a lot of youth with a migration background, especially from uh, originally uh, the parents from Morocco. And so they wanted to start something that is also recognizable for them, you know, in the content that will give. So they started with lessons about the history of Morocco, the history of North Africa and the history of Islam. And it was very focused on to strengthen the ethnic and cultural identity. It was one of the lessons which started without the intervention of a researcher. It was like, okay, this is the need. We see this and a lot of young people say, okay, we have the history lessons here and that's okay, but we can't recognize ourselves in the content we get. That was for them a starting point to say, okay, we have to give them also lessons about their cultural background and history and also about how it started with the migration with their grandparents and their parents, etc. You know, that history also, that was also a part of the lessons program. So they asked us, because they know about my research identity, to have an evaluation about that. And at this point, we had observations, we had interviews, you know, we had pre and post tests about how it impacted also their hybrid identity, their ethnic identity, their sense of belonging, their school belonging, you know, also from theory. So we did that research and next year we will develop the lessons for, you know, to have a more reconciliation with the literature we know about giving lessons about identity development and especially from the multiple cultural identity. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good example to say, you know, the need came from the practice, from the education, from the school. And we also used our knowledge about this. We used also the theories about it to say, okay, we want to develop this lessons program, you know, this intervention, we want to develop it further. And hopefully this will be also the case for another research in the future. So that's one of the examples I give here. It's a nice example and also remarkable because I really recognize some parts of my research, which is culturally responsive teaching. And this is what you are describing. How can teachers be culturally responsive in order to develop this identity in students? Nice to hear that teachers need that. So I think that brings me to the final question. That is a question that we ask every single guest on our podcast. How do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? I think the conversations I have with teachers, with practitioners, with young people self, and when I have those conversations, it's, you know, it sounds a bit nerdy, but I just think about my research and, you know, some <laughs> theories. <laughs> and I think, oh, this is very interesting. I think that contact is very important for a researcher to have, you know, to also to get some feeling with the practice, with, with those people you research, which are part of your research group. So I think it's very important to keep that feeling and to have the conversations and the contact with those people. That's one. And the other one is also reading non-academic books about this topic, you know, especially if we talk about identity, it's a hot topic, you know, I think there are a lot of books about how people develop their own identity and how they experience it right now and where it came from, you know, the political and the more societal views about it. I think that's also a very interesting way to look at it because you're not just looking at it from a more scientific point of view, but also from how normal people, <laughs> sorry to say this, talk about this topic and how they experience it, you know. And if you read a non-scientific book, for example, so they give it a meaning and for them it was important enough to write a book about it. Yeah. And I think that's very good for a researcher also to read it in, in that way. And it's also, you know, a relaxing way to read about the topic, about your topic. And you are also able to read about the topic in a non-scientific way. 
I think those two things are things what I want to mention and what is worth to mention to stay motivated in my field of research. Thank you, Mehmet. Well, we arrived at the end of the podcast. Thank you for joining us today and for helping us increase visibility of outstanding social scientists as yourself and of cutting-edge research. And thank you all for listening and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design, and Zeynep Alpai for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Research and Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon. Music